Welcome to IP Frequently. IP Frequently is brought to you by Dominion Harbor Enterprises and is sponsored by IPedia. IPedia, innovation clarity that provides real, actionable patent intelligence. Join our hosts, David Pridham and Brad Sheaf, advancing the issues of intellectual property. Welcome back to IP Frequently. This week we've got a special guest with us. Uh, Matt uh, Del Giorno is here. Uh, and we're going to talk about some new emerging business models in the IP space. We've seen a lot of uh, fluctuations, tumult hitting the IP market uh, over the past few years. And it seems like a lot of uh, companies are taking different approaches to IP. So, for example, we've talked in the past about some of the public IP companies. We've talked in the past about um, uh, some of the models of uh, companies trying to privateer their portfolios. Uh, now we're looking on the other side of uh, uh, the IP monetization um, market to, to folks who are taking more defensive strategies. And, and three in particular we want to look at today are um, uh, the lot network, uh, the open invention network, and then also some of the other um, interesting uh, models that are that are popping up. We've uh, talked about uh, unified patents before and our complete and utter disdain for that business model. So we won't get deep into that. But we did see an interesting um, news release from Microsoft uh, relating to its uh, Azure cloud platform that I think is uh, that I think is worth mentioning. But we'll start with the the lot network um, at a high level. The lot network is a, is a, a network of companies, a lot of large tech companies primarily who. Um, uh, sort of join together to pool their uh, patents, agree to grant licenses to any of the other members if uh, the uh, member that owns the patents transfer them to what the lot network refers to as a patent assertion entity. Uh, what that specifically means, I don't know. We've looked at their website, we've received their emails, but it seems to me that a patent assertion entity can be anyone from, uh, you know, an Eric Spangenberg type all the way up to, to Qualcomm in terms of. Uh, in terms of who it would uh, who it would uh, who it would cover. So, uh, Matt, do you want to start with that one and give your thoughts? I think there's a lot of problems with the license on transfer network. So, one of them is it comes from a place of hating patents. If you look at the the folks behind this network, the Googles and so forth, these are guys who notoriously hate IP. And so, when they put together a program like the Lot Network, you got to look at it from uh, the perspective of what does it do to the value of IP. And there's no doubt when you're limiting the secondary market, when you're limiting the value of IP when it gets sold to a third party, you're limiting the value of IP up front. That has ramifications up and down uh, the investment chain. Yeah, I think that's right. I think I think one of the things that you see with the lot network, and I, I it's amazing that you've got some companies with some really good patent portfolios that are that are are, are part of this, and you've got some companies with zero. Um, um, patents in their uh, in their in their quiver. So, for example, you've got on the one hand the Googles of the world, who you're either anti anti innovation, anti patents, um, uh, except their patents, which obviously in their view are incredibly valuable. But then they've joined forces in this network with companies like Newegg, who absolutely bring nothing to the innovation supply chain uh, other than reselling products, many of which are ripped off from um, companies that actually innovate. Uh, but what I what I think is even more interesting is when you get into these large companies, the Googles of the world and um, uh, you know, the Adobe's of the world. They, they, these companies are companies that are built on intellectual property. Google's entire business 
rests on you know, their Plymouth Rock patent that they developed, uh, that the founders developed at Stanford that they paid hundreds of millions of dollars for back when they were um, first seated. And um, what, what's incredibly interesting is when these public companies commit their entire portfolio to a network like the Lot Network and, and basically giving out free licenses if they do any type of um, uh, transfer to a, uh, an assertion entity, which is very loosely defined, they are really uh, hurting the shareholders of that company, I think, first and foremost, in addition to the overall patent value chain, because those are assets that are corporate assets. Those are assets in a public company. And, you know, at the end of the day, I, I don't think, I, I don't care if these companies want to join together and uh, take their assets completely out of the market. And quite frankly, if I were a, uh, a foreign competitor that wanted to enter the U.S. and enter, enter this market, this is one of the first things, and I was light on patents, it's one of the first things I'd sign up for. I'd sign up for the Lot Network, um, and I'd sign up for some of the other uh, programs that we'll talk about in a little bit, including some of these new hosting models like the Microsoft model, because it's going to help insulate you from these huge portfolios that companies have spent, in some cases, hundreds of millions of dollars to develop. I would love to see the ROI PowerPoint that these guys put together to justify creating and participating in the lot network. If they're trying to avoid getting sued by patent assertion entities, I guess what that means is they want to avoid paying license fees for patents that they infringe. I have a problem with that premise to begin with. But still, how is this anything other than an erosion of shareholder value? And, and where are the disclosures? I, I would just love to see the math that makes devaluation of Google's patent portfolio or Cisco's or anybody else's worth the license fees that they're avoiding by not being sued by um, by PAEs. You know, another issue I have with the Lot Network is um, it, it seems like an overly clever solution to to just cross licensing your patents. If if you're concerned about Cisco's patents and you don't want them to get out in the world and uh, be asserted against you, then enter into a, a negotiation uh, with Cisco between Google and Cisco and, and enter into a cross-license. That's a well-defined negotiation. My concern with this new animal is it's just somebody trying to be a little too cute, and there's going to be a lot of unintended consequences as we see it play out. You, you know what's interesting? Uh, when you look at um, the, the, the and I just happen to have a copy of the membership list here, when you start looking at these, the diverse group of members in the lot network, you see public company after public company. And what's really interesting is you see a lot of these companies that have taken U.S. taxpayer money to bail them out of huge messes that they created when they you know, did whatever they did, whether it be General Motors, who um, uh, continually chose to bonus its executives tens of millions of dollars, or whether it be J.P. Morgan Chase that, that put up basically Ponzi schemes of, um, of, these, uh, uh, of these loans back before the, the Great Recession. These are all public companies that uh, the U.S. taxpayers bailed out that then turned around and basically depleted corporate assets by signing up for this type of this type of patent pooling arrangement, which is just outrageous from a taxpayer perspective. The other thing is that you're basically saying when you join the lot network that we're going to sign up for this loose partnership, but we really don't trust 
the partners we have because the whole notion of the lot network is predicated on, well, the guy next to me is going to screw me by selling these patents to someone and then take a back-end interest when they decide to sue me. Yeah. I don't know how you administer this in the long term. I mean, if you look at the number of patents that are pledged to the lot network, it's, it's in the tens of thousands, and there's not just one lot network. Anybody can set up their own lot network. It's, it's, it's a voluntary thing. So as patents make their way into the marketplace through divestitures and acquisitions and bankruptcies uh, and so forth, how, is, how are you ever going to figure out where these patents came from and who, who can't sue who on what? It, it's just going to be unworkable. Yeah, I, 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 completely, I completely agree with that. And, uh, it's, uh, and when you look at this group, it's, it's very, very uneven. And what's amazing to me is that a company like Honda, a company like GM, a, a company you know, like uh, um, you know, Hyundai with 10,000-plus patents would throw their, throw their lot in with some of these, these retailers who are just looking for sort of free, um, free patent coverage. And I, and I, and I think you know, one of the things we'll, we'll do is we'll, we'll reach out and try to get someone from the uh, lot network to, to join in and um, maybe answer some of these questions because obviously it's very, it's very confusing. And I don't see how it really helps the, the, the patent troll problem at all except for choking off um, you know, some, of, some of the supply, but certainly nothing like any of the uh, any of the the real material supply, um, and and you know the other the other sort of final point, um, the final point I would make on this the, the, this whole lot network is, you know when you when you see the way they're pitching this, and when you see the way, you know when when a company when a large company doesn't opt into the lot network. They're almost treated as an outcast, and they're almost treated as if they're supporting patent trolls, even if they've never um, once uh, uh, assigned or, 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 or privateered mm -hmm. patents to a patent troll that was meant to, to generate revenue. And, and first, it presumes that the whole concept of uh, generating revenue from your portfolio is wrong, which is just idiotic on its face. But second, it sort of stigmatizes those companies that don't sign up for this type of scheme. And, and, and the, the way that they use their marketing materials to go after small startups, uh, companies that are coming out of incubators, whose entire value is based on um, the ability to protect their intellectual property is just, in, in my view, completely, completely wrong. It's pushing the troll narrative. I mean, this is something that Google is not new to. The, the troll problem is a what? A 1% problem in the patent space, a half a percent problem. And they're pushing a narrative, and this is sort of taking it to the extreme by shaming the companies that don't join or pushing it on startups who maybe don't have uh, the leverage to push back. And they're educating the whole next round of innovators uh, with, with a mindset that just doesn't reflect the realities of the, of the patent space. And I will, I will say it's an interesting group that even, and I'm not going to talk about any specific, uh, specific members, but it actually, if you look at their list, there are companies on here who have... Um, trolled before or, or uh, asserted patents before, um, and now they're part of this network. So I think that's, I think that's very interesting. So the next, um, the next uh, model uh, that we've got on our list to talk about is the Open Invention Network. And for all of these um, different companies or pools, we'll invite, we'll, we'll ask our um, producer, Tom, 
to invite one of the founders on so that we can get some of these questions asked because we have a ton of them. Uh, but the next is the Open Invention Network, and that is um, uh, a pool of patents related to uh, Linux, the Linux operating system, uh, where companies uh, uh, license their patents into the pool every time they join, and all the members enjoy a Linux-wide license to that uh, th those portion of their patents that uh, uh, that cover some aspect of, of Linux. So again, a large pool, uh, a lot of members licensing uh, in and licensing out, no post-joining um, transfer restriction or, or spring license. There's just a license that's granted when you uh, sign up for the uh, OIN. So what say you about that one? I, this is a broader question about open source in general. I mean, open source and open invention and patent pools around that are all essentially anti-IP. Um, the open source network is, uh, my code is free to use. If you add to it, then I get to use your code and so on and so forth. And the idea is that innovation will take place in the absence of, of incentives to do so, those incentives being the patent system. That just fundamentally is not a view that I agree with. If you look at the internet boom, if you look at the, the PC boom, those things are correlated very heavily to innovation. They're correlated to patent filings. Um, the United States is a leader in the world in this economy, in the information economy, I think in large part because of the IP system that we have. So now that um, folks are being asked to pay up, license fees for inventions that they're using, they're saying, hey, well, maybe we didn't need that in the first place. That's um, it's just faulty. It's just faulty thinking. Yeah, and I, and I think again, you're, you're, it's, it doesn't seem on its face to be as onerous as the lot network, but it's still, I, I agree, a problem. And and the entire premise again is this this sort of illusion of the patent troll problem, which, as you said, less than one percent. It's not. A, I, I don't. I, I don't. I've never seen, um, other than pure rhetoric, uh, uh, a, a real example of where that's a problem. I've heard of the, the, the company sending out thousands of letters to mom and pop um, uh, coffee shops and, and all that. I think that's happened once. And I think that company was quickly called out, fined, um, ordered to, to drop all their, their pending litigation, uh, and really publicly stigmatized. So uh, if, if that in that one case, which is used to justify all of this, again, you know, uh, mosquito meet meet hellfire missile. Um, it, it, in that one case, there was quick rebuke and quick retaliation for a bad actor in the space. But we're getting more and more uh, to the point where all that matters to uh, uh, someone is not the patent itself, not the technology described, not the claims, what they teach, who owns the patent. So it, it's sort of the British system. Um, that the founding fathers sought so hard to distance themselves from, where only folks who were actually part of the large companies could get a patent. And uh, obviously that's something that's, that's not what we're talking about here today, but it seems to me it's what's used, being used to drive some of these corporate sheep into these different business models. And it's used to intimidate, again, small companies who use Linux to sign up for these pools so that none of these large companies who want to piggyback on this innovation that's being uh, undertaken have to pay for it. You know, look, if you look at a company like Red Hat, um, you know, they make their money from taking open source uh, software and providing services around it. 
that's great if that's your model. Uh, provide as many services as you want, but but overlaying a royalty-free patent system um, undercuts the innovation that, that, that got you the software in the first place that let you develop the services model. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a patent lawyer. I have, I have folks come to me all the time with ideas. So, hey, how about this for an app? Could we make a money doing this? And I have my own, and my brothers and sisters come to me. And the first question is, well, how do you protect it? As soon as we put it up, is it going to get ripped off? The answer is, yeah, if you don't protect it, it's going to get ripped off. And so we're, we're just not in a world where software development takes place in the absence of protection. Yeah, I mean, you, you just can't get investment. You watch the show Shark Tank with all those left-wingers on it, and uh, first thing they ask companies is, do you have a patent? Um, the very first thing. And, and I know it's easy to just roll your eyes and buy into the um, this whole mentality of uh, the, the patent troll myth, but it's a myth. And, uh, and, and uh, you know, as I said, every time that... that the only time that that example has really come up, that company paid pretty dearly for it. But on the other hand, what you don't see is, um, you know, an example of uh, where the company that just decides to steal has to pay up. I mean, even when companies are hit with huge jury verdicts, um, there, there's it's impossible for a patent owner to to hold on to that. And and so you've got uh, you've got this sort of stereotype just permeating the entire technology space, but at the same time, you have to go get an invention. And when you go get a patent, and when you patent your idea, obviously, there's a public disclosure involved. And so it's sort of a fraudulent, it's sort of a fraud on the small inventor on the startup, because what we want if we're a public company who's looking to efficiently infringe and steal someone's invention is, well, we want your disclosure. We want to know what you're working on. We want to know what you invented. But fuck you, we're not going to, uh, at the end of the day, pay you for it. We're just going to steal it. Yeah, this is another one where I would love to see the ROI PowerPoint that um, the, the in-house counsel pitches to management about why this is a good idea or uh, pitches to shareholders or pitches to investors about they're going to sign up for this network that's going to devalue patents. That's a great thing. Yeah. it's. Um, I, I, I mean, I haven't seen it. I the, the only thing I've seen are the shame emails that try to get people to to sign up for it. And I, and I think the last uh, business model, which is different that we're going to talk about here, is this whole concept of uh, the Microsoft Azure announcement that they came up with last week. So uh, Microsoft came out with a, a promotion for its cloud-based Azure platform where it, uh, it, it, it basically said that any companies using that platform would enjoy basically the protection of Microsoft's patent portfolio with respect to uh, anything that uh, company was doing on the cloud, including potentially uh, being able to take some Microsoft patents for defensive purposes, pr presumably to be used against some startup or small or mid-sized company who thought that that company who was operating on the cloud was somehow uh, violating their intellectual property. Yeah, so this one's a little bit different, right? Because it's um, this is not anti-troll uh, Anti-PAE, it, it makes no sense to borrow patents from Microsoft to assert against a troll because they've got nothing to assert against. So this is an instance where it's going to be a competitor on competitor suit. Um, so a little bit of a different dynamic than the last two business models we just discussed. I, I don't know that I'm inherently troubled by this. I think it it's going to be very interesting to see how it plays out. Everything is going to be running in the cloud, everything, if, if it isn't already on, on Microsoft's or Amazon's. And so this is going to end up being a very 
broad protection mechanism. And I'm wondering if it's not being driven by competitive pressures. So Amazon, obviously the 800 pound gorilla in the cloud space, um, a lot of other companies, including Microsoft, are having trouble breaking in. So is this something I wonder that they felt that they had to offer to lure customers? Yeah, I mean, you hear a lot about indemnification and um, protecting companies that are uh, signing up for cloud service. And I, I think you're right. I think it's it's a it's a an ability or it, it, it's it's an attempt to strike out against Microsoft, against Google, against Rackspace, against some of these other companies. Um, in, in a rather creative way. Now, at the same time, I think one of the things this highlights is the incredible difficulty um, small uh, companies, individual inventors have in protecting their IP in a cloud-based environment, right? Because now uh, you have companies who are renting 5, 10, 15 servers from Microsoft and running infringing software on that platform, uh, not only do you have to go to this company who's potentially larger than you um, to negotiate a license or even you know, have to sue them, um, but now you have to also go up against Microsoft because those companies are running a few boxes from them. So I think, I, I think it sh certainly shows, again, how the deck is stacked, but at the same time, I, I think it's a much better, it's an interesting competitive model for Microsoft. It's much better than Lot and OIN, which I just think are, so, are, are just insidious. Um, but uh, you know, at the end of the day, I, I still think it, 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 this type of indemnity with teeth could have an adverse uh, uh, consequence for a small company looking to protect its IP. Yeah, maybe it's a clever way for Microsoft to get this stuff off their books. I mean, they, what are they doing with their portfolio otherwise? It's just sitting there as a cost center, and if they start spinning out patents because people can put them to use in the market, um, it's a, it's a win, I guess, for their customer. It's a win for them. They get an otherwise idle asset off their books. Yeah. No, and that and that they are one thing Microsoft is is they are creative with some of the deals they've struck over the years. Um, yeah, for I, I've always admired the deal they did with the uh, AOL portfolio where they spent like nine hundred million dollars and then got seven hundred million back from Facebook and uh, privateered the rest, but got a license to the whole thing basically for free. Uh, they did that Xilinx deal earlier last year, and then they're they're doing this to sort of build their business based on IP. So I always thought they were an interesting company. Really, ever since they hired Marshall Phelps to run their IP group from from IBM, I thought they were uh, not the I, swimmer. Not no, that's Michael Phelps. Marshall is Marshall is a good swimmer, but uh, I don't think he's ever won the Olympics or a, a gold uh, a gold medal or anything like that. Um, you know, one of the things I think to sort of wrap this up is a um, is how these gravitations in the market impact some of the more established defensive patent players, and in particular, you know, RPX. We've, we've seen a lot of um, movement to these new business models. It seems to be initiated by the Googles, by the Microsofts. Uh, it seems like as these models um, start to stack up, they are somewhat competitive to RPX, and so what, what do you think about that? I 100% agree. I, I hadn't thought about it until you just said it, but um, the, these folks are transacting patents um, up front, and so they're they're taking the, the patents out of play downstream for where they're going to be asserted, so I, it certainly is going to shrink the pool of assets that RPX has to, to transact on. I guess the question would be, how would RPX react is there a way for them to adjust their model 
um, maybe by putting together some of these networks, you know, if they wanted to create a license on transfer network, maybe that's a service that they can provide for their customers and somehow figure out how to make money off of it, but not let the Googles and these other companies sort of transact these patents out from under them. They have a, they have a huge patent portfolio, obviously. Um, it's certainly heavily licensed to their members, but there's no reason. I've always thought, I mean, we've got obviously our monument IP bank with thousands and thousands of assets in it, but uh, the IB, I, RPX is uniquely positioned to do something with startup companies, with small companies, with companies that uh, need to bridge the gap from IP to IPO because it's a huge gap. Uh, I always thought they could do something very interesting with those patents that would be very beneficial from a tax perspective and also getting them hooks into a ton of startup companies in the in the Bay Area and beyond. They also have assets across the world that they could deploy in a similar fashion. And then when you look at the sort of the Microsoft solution um, in terms of the building in these pools of patents for indemnity purposes, you know, maybe uh, they could do something like that in certain markets, whether to help their members or to build new members. So those are, you know, I think they're much more viable options in getting into the insurance business or getting into the um, mediation business, mediation business or the discovery business, which all seem to not be going so well. Um, you know, the final business model I, I want to talk about is one that's near and dear to our heart. It's, it's our, our own Monument Peak Ventures, which recently acquired the iconic Kodak portfolio and is rolling out um, that portfolio anew uh, and is in the process of uh, doing a bunch of strategic deals across the globe, both in terms of uh, investing in commercialization to um, uh, some, some targeted strategic licensing uh, to, a bunch of, to a bunch of companies and also seeding some, some startups uh, via the, uh, via the uh, Monument uh, Bank of Intellectual Property. Um, and I, 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 I note that uh, only because there have been uh, a couple of those large um, uh, deals that we've seen in the last couple of years. We've obviously seen the Nortel deal that went to RPX. We saw the Unwired Planet deal. All of those deals seem to be focused on uh, large pools of patents that are immediately thrust into litigation. What's interesting to me is that the Kodak portfolio, at least so far, hasn't really been thrust into to litigation. It's more of an alternate business model. Nor should it be. I mean, this is a portfolio that's transacted for hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars in the past. And, you know, I have a feeling there's going to be folks who look at the transaction and say, oh my gosh, it's a patent assertion entity or it's a, it's a troll problem. And at some point, when a portfolio is, is so recognized to be valuable, um, you, you have to stop tainting it with that kind of dialogue. I mean, it's a portfolio that's been tracked, it's been transacted, it has a history. It should be very easy uh, for companies and justifiable for companies to, to renew their licenses or take new licenses for a portfolio like this. And litigation just really shouldn't even be an option. It shouldn't yeah. be necessary. I think that's, I think that's, um, I think that is, uh, that is spot on. I, and I, and I, I'm looking forward to, to hearing from the folks at Monument Peak about that, that entire rollout. That's, that, should be a, that should be an interesting development. Well, um, I think we'll, uh, we'll go ahead and, and wrap up this episode of uh, IP Frequently. Uh, we want to thank everyone uh, who put this together, our, our producer, our, our writer, our uh, director, 
the entire crew. And again, we want to invite uh, folks, sort of an open invitation from anyone from the Lot Network, uh, the Open uh, Invention Network, someone from Microsoft, uh, perhaps, and also our friends at, at Monument Peak, if, if someone there wants to, to join us as well. Our, our, our producer will reach out to each one of those uh, entities, and we'll, we'll try to get those, uh, um, those scheduled in the near future. But in the meantime, uh, thank you very much for listening, and we look forward to talking to you again down the road.